I feel intense sorrow when I'm around those people who are watching somebody die. But I also feel a sense of purpose, a sense of being enabling them to be fully present, to notice what's happening, to take with them into their bereavement a sense of fulfillment, a sense of pride in having accompanied this person to their very last breath, a, a sense of being able to see that this dying, whilst it's sad, hasn't been frightening. And so I'm very occupied, I'm very busy in what looks like quiet. In my head, I'm very busy thinking about what is going on and what needs to happen in order that that space is the most conducive and most helpful it can possibly be for the people who are in it. Hello and welcome. My name is Liz Gleason and you're listening to Shapes of Grief. Shapes of Grief is a curation of stories from international guests who are authors, grief professionals and ordinary people all with a unique perspective on grief and loss. Loss and the resulting grief can really have such a profound effect on our lives and it is my intention that these conversations may provide some comfort, hope and inspiration to you, our listeners. If you find the podcast supportive, please do consider becoming a patron on patreon.com. Even a euro or a dollar per month can help keep us going. For more grief resources and grief supports, find and follow us on all the usual social media channels and on shapesofgrief.com. On a storm-torn shoreline, a woman was standing, the spray hung like jewels in her hair. Welcome to Shapes of Grief. I'm so delighted to be joined by Catherine Mannix again, Dr. Catherine Mannix. Catherine, you're really welcome. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here properly with you instead of just down the telephone line like we were last time. Exactly, our Skype call. So we're sitting here in Our Lady's Hospice in Harold's Cross, Dublin. Um, Catherine has been on a trip over to Dublin the last few days for the Irish Hospice Foundation Forum and the, the title of that was Dying is Everybody's Business. And Catherine was the, the keynote speaker. So thank you so much for scheduling this into your, your three days and making time for it. Your previous episode, Catherine, that we did, episode 12 of Shapes of Grief, has been listened to nearly a thousand times. Wow. Um, and people really need this information, really need your wisdom, Catherine, because you have this beautiful integration of the medical awareness, the medical knowledge, and incredible compassion. Um, And it's lovely. We would all love to see more and more of that in palliative care, in medicine in general. So what you have to say really is a gift. So thank you for, for sharing it with us. It's reaching far and wide and it matters and it's making a difference. 
So Catherine, we talked about a lot of things the last time we met, but there was a few things I thought we could address today. And one, I guess, is coming back to this this skill or this way of being that you have, which is so compassionate and so human. And at the forum yesterday, a few people were asking some of the panel speakers, you know, we had people from the Garda Síochána, the police force in Ireland. Um, we had paediatric palliative doctors speaking. We had the coroner. People were asking, how do you do this work? Like, how do you do this work and still, you know, show up to your own life and your own family and not let it get on top of you? So would you be willing to speak a little bit about that? I'm sure you've a lot to say. Yeah, let's let's try and unpick it a little bit because it is really interesting and we do get asked about it a lot in palliative care. The thing that I think, first of all, is worth saying is that there are things that each of us can do as individuals uniquely that other people perhaps would be uncomfortable with doing. And we find our way perhaps to a niche in nursing or medicine or you know whatever role in life we've taken that suits our own skill set. So we will escape from places where we consistently feel uncomfortable. So we listened to uh, a Garda, an Irish policeman, yesterday talking about the really difficult situations that as, as a young policeman he found himself in and then as an older, wiser sergeant then supporting the young police men and women who were his to look after. And he saw looking after them as part of his role. Um, but maybe there would have been lots of other police people who had come into the job and found that that was too much for them and they've moved on to be very useful members of society doing a different job. So we kind of prune ourselves out, I think, to find a role that's comfortable. And we see it in palliative care. We get lots of people who come and spend time working in hospices or in our hospital or our community palliative care teams and they bring their wisdom and their experience and their skills with them. And they acquire new experience and extra skills. And some of them take to it like a duck takes to water and they will stay in palliative care for the rest of their professional lives. And some of them say, this is fantastic, but it's hurting me too much. I actually need to go back to being a nurse in a surgical ward. I need to go back into my oncology practice, whatever it was that had been their previous career. But now I'm taking this extra set of information and wisdom and knowledge with me. And one of the things that they take is an attitude. And so there's something about bringing knowledge and bringing skills but also bringing an attitude. And I think that's what we're talking about. So let's unpick this notion of an attitude or what that means. Like, what is that? What is that wisdom or state of being or knowledge or toolkit that some people have? For example, dealing with grief all the time or dealing with dying and death or being able to go into burning buildings and take people out of them, alive or dead. What is that attitude that some people have that they can keep going doing that? Mm. So I think it's, we call it compassion, don't we? That's its name. I'm not really quite sure what it is. 
and you know I've been pondering on this for an awfully long time and I still haven't worked out what it is but it's what well, I tell you what it's not it's not holiness it's not being better than other people and I think that's really really important to say at the very beginning when people are able to serve other people who are in a really difficult situation the person who's serving the person who's helping is in some way getting a satisfaction or a gratification that enables them to be able to stay there and do that. And I don't mean that they're doing it in order to feel good, but they may feel less bad than another person who doesn't get that same sense of gratification from that particular issue. You, you and I are a really good example of that in that you have specialised in your work, you've chosen to work with grief. And I've chosen to work with people who are approaching the ends of their lives, and the families and the dear people around them who are all troubled by that approaching event. And personally, I find dealing with grieving and bereavement people who are grieving, people who are bereaved, very, very difficult. It hurts me. And it hurts me in a way that dealing with people who are dying and their sorrowing families around a deathbed doesn't hurt me. I feel intense sorrow when I'm around those people who are watching somebody die. But I also feel a sense of purpose, a sense of being enabling them to be fully present, to notice what's happening, to take with them into their bereavement a sense of fulfillment, a sense of pride in having accompanied this person to their very last breath, a, a sense of being able to see that this dying, whilst it's sad, hasn't been frightening. Profound loss can rock our inner world. It's confusing, life-altering, and often scary. You've probably already figured out that there are no stages of grief. But are there other models, theories, tools, or practices that can help us to navigate the grieving process? To learn more, visit shapesofgrief.com. As Liz says, the more people who are grief-trained, the more supportive and compassionate our society will be. And that will make life so much better for anyone coping with loss and grief. Now, let's get you back to the podcast. And so I'm very occupied, I'm very busy in what looks like quiet. In my head, I'm very busy thinking about what is going on and what needs to happen in order that that space is the most conducive and most helpful it can possibly be for the people who are in it. When I meet people who are grieving... I simply feel their grief and I, and I just feel that I'm drowning in it. So I'm not present in the same way for grieving people. And you, who are so skilled in helping grieving people, will, I assume, be doing something very similar in terms of being present to their grief, but also paying attention to how it's presenting and what you might be able to do that enables them to find safety in their grieving. I don't know, I'd really love to hear you talk yeah. about that. Well, I think as well, it's what we're used to. It's what we know. I know grief, so it doesn't scare me or overwhelm me. And, you know, one strategy that I have is 
not getting caught in somebody's story mm. and really just being present to this human being who is suffering in front of me. And I think the satisfaction that I get is knowing I'm able to show up to this suffering mm. without bringing my own into it at all. Um, but I'm, isn't it great that, I, that somebody is able to show up to this suffering for this person? So that's how I frame it, you know, that I'm of service here and it's a good thing to be of service. So it's, it's not getting lost in the story, but it's, it's who's in front of me, what are the sensations that they're experiencing in their body, that they're labelling as feelings, and being able to hold that, hold space for that, without wanting or needing it to be different. Because I understand the importance of, of feeling, rather than running from something. And to be able to facilitate that is a good thing. Actually, I'm preparing at the moment for a lecture that I'm giving in the Irish Hospice Foundation to the master's students, and it's on self-care and self-compassion. And I did a bit of research, and the, the, the science of this is really amazing. We have a system, of, we have a caregiving circuitry in our bodies. And what happens is when something difficult presents in front of us, we can go into fight or flight or freeze or friend or collapse. But there's a whole other system that gets triggered as well. And it's a caregiving system. And if we sort of unconsciously assessed, assess that I can be of service here, I can make a difference, I have something useful to offer, I'm able to address this suffering either by being present or by taking action, that system kicks in and it actually suppresses our amygdala response, you know, which puts us into fight or flight. And it means that we can take action. Now, action, like I said, can be just simply being present or saying something or doing something that's supportive. So I thought that was really interesting. And when that system kicks in, we do get a kickback. It stimulates dopamine in our system. And so caregiving, when we manage to override our stress response, caregiving can become our go-to response rather than the stress of what am I going to say? What should I do? What needs to be done here? And I think a lot of people, such as firefighters, guards, nurses, are operating from that a lot of the time yeah. without realising they are. Yeah, that's really, really interesting, isn't it? And when you think about how um, we learn to do things for reward and, you th and that that eventually become, becomes a reflex response because you know the reward is coming. So Pavlov and his dogs being fed when a bell rang and then eventually they would salivate just when a bell rang. If you know that you've been in a state of great trauma alongside somebody and you've been able to find a way to feel a way through it and be helpful and at the end of it felt that reward of the dopamine which I guess is that thing that we feel that 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 was really difficult but it was a job well done I think is probably how yeah. it feels yeah then the next time you feel overwhelmed you will start to explore the possibility of again going into that helping role which 
will reward you again. And eventually, I guess, that'll become a lifetime habit, won't it? But yeah, it becomes yeah. like a way of life because, you know, part of me always thought, how do I do this? I'm sitting with several intensely distressed people in the morning. But the thing is, like I worked years ago in financial software and I was the marketing and events manager and I did a great job. It was well paid. I traveled the world and my soul was shriveling. I was so unhappy. You know, there was no, there was no meaning in it. There was no purpose or, or meaningful purpose to my, to my work. And, you know, I was in my 20s. I didn't really understand, you know, what was going on for me. But doing the work that I do now feels so good to me because there's purpose. It's like in that hour, I know I've made a positive difference or I know that I've offered something something to this person that no one else all week has been able to offer, which is sitting with their suffering, creating a space for their suffering to express itself because so many people you know particularly on a first session come in the door and they're wooden robotic frozen and the minute the door is closed and they sit down and they know why they're there they're there to you know express their grief or discuss their grief or find some sort of support in their grief just the melting of the body that you witness and to facilitate that is a really good thing. So although it's their suffering, my own system feels so good to be able to to be able to offer that space to them. So it's it's a really interesting area. It is, isn't, isn't it? it? I think the other thing that is coming out of this conversation and reflecting on listening to the policeman talking yesterday is that there's a sense of people in these roles bringing themselves to the role, like he talked about retrieving a family from a burning building. And then leaving... A family who were killed. Yeah, and, yeah. yes, and he was, yeah. carry, he was carrying uh, a charred child out of a house. And his voice wobbled as he described it, probably 20 years after the event. Yeah. But at the time when he was doing that, he sounded as though what he did was that he left himself almost on the threshold and he performed a task. He understood what the task was. And then I'm listening to you talking about being with people in deep sorrow and grief and being with and leaving yourself and not being caught in their story and being really present. And then I'm thinking back about what I just said a few minutes ago about being with people at a deathbed and it being about those people and not about me and what I'm bringing. And I'm starting to realise that we're actually starting to describe something here, which again is not about us being good people. It's simply about the fact that under those very difficult circumstances, we take a particular attitude which is selfless. It's aware of a skill set that we have, that we're bringing, that we're using, but it's not about us. And is compassion, is that part of the jigsaw of, of making uh, compassion 
happen because I don't believe that there are people who lack compassion but I do believe that there are people who find it difficult to express their compassion perhaps because they're overwhelmed by the circumstances they find themselves in. Yeah and and I love that you say it's a toolkit because it's not about being a better person or something it's you've learned a set of skills and tools and I think one of the words that's important here is empathy and I know you know I often will go, okay, what, I, I need to find something in me that resonates with this experience. I need to find a little bit of distress or sorrow or grief, something in me that knows this to check in with that mm -hmm. so that I'm not aloof and detached with who I'm, I'm, I'm with. But I need to find a little bit of me that knows this or knows some shape of this to be able to resonate with the other person but I'm only checking in and then I'm going back to hold them in that space mm. resonating from that place if you like so I'm not going I'm not pulling in my kids and going imagine this was my kids or going into a story about that mm. but just enough to feel some flavor of what they're experiencing and and actually as you're saying that would what I'm thinking again, and I've discussed this with doctors in training over many years, is that we bring our very young selves to the service of other people when we enter healthcare. And we bring whatever life experiences we've had. And some people already have experienced illness, trauma, bereavement, even as very young people, but most haven't. And I'm certainly aware of my personal journey that as I became older, married, had children, experienced bereavements, I was almost certainly better each time that I tried to serve other people because I had congruent experience that anchored me. And you're right, it's not that when you are my patient and you're talking to me about... Um, the death of your mother I'm not thinking about my mother I'm thinking about your mother but now I understand that relationship because I am a mother I understand that relationship because I have a mother I understand that that pre that kind of preemptive grieving because I've experienced preemptive grieving for people who I love who are going to die so yeah life makes us richer and richer doesn't it? and it gives us experiences it gives us like hooks pegs to hang the experience on so you've got a few extra resources to draw on. And I guess also the experiences that we have to draw on are the richness of the practice that we've had, all the number of people mm. who we have looked after have themselves left a little imprint on us, which is another piece of experience, it's another family, it's another dynamic that makes us a little bit wiser for every other family that we, we meet. Yeah. So... The job is really, really enriching, and sometimes it's very sad. But actually, it's okay to be sad. In fact, it's probably a bit awkward not to be sad, isn't it? That's that's maybe a sign that you haven't got any juice left in the tank if you can't yeah. if you can't feed emotions. But to go home and not then be able to be ourselves at home because we're carrying all of that sadness home with us. That's the thing that takes people back out of palliative care again. They haven't found a way to switch that around and their strengths, therefore, can't be properly used either. So yeah. they need to take their strengths and 
take them to a place that's more conducive for, yeah. for their particular way of dealing with the world. And some of us can carry on doing this thing and other people are doing other things. Um, I find it really, really difficult when people say, oh, you do palliative care, you must be so special. And, <laughs> and all of us in palliative care have had that experience and we really, really know that we're just, we're not special. But what we are is unique individuals who've got this set of things inside us that can work in this way, that can allow other people to benefit from it, which gives us a gratification and that enables us then to be able to go to the next person still with something to give rather yeah. than dried up and exhausted. I love what you're saying there about th this notion of wisdom, like the more we experience something, the wiser we grow around it. And it's so different to knowledge. Mm -hmm. You know, we can have all the knowledge in the book, but the lived experience, the embodied lived experience can only be collected by embodied <laughs> lived experience. And just the importance of y people like you who have that experience of younger doctors being able to access that and learn from it and get a taste from it. And it also, it, it also um, really highlights the importance of not protecting our children in life. You know, I've said this again, or ourselves. We're so pain adverse in our society. Um, protect the kids from that. Don't talk to them about that. Even now it's Halloween. And is it Halloween next week? And it's all about don't scare the kids. You know, don't wear this, don't wear that. But what are we creating when, you know, and I understand there are some children who, you know, might be on the autism spectrum and we need to be really compassionate and aware of our actions and our behaviours. I'm not talking about that. But we are wrapping ourselves and our children up in cotton wool and the problem with that, it's not that we want people to suffer, but we learn from difficult experiences and we learn from suffering and it does expand us and grow us. Like we aren't, we become who we are in life. We're not born that way, we become. And if we want to become people who are able to sit with suffering, are able to sit with joy, because um, it's all two sides of the one coin. The more you're able to sit with suffering, the more you're able to sit with joy. We have to be able to go through difficult things because very rarely do we learn from the nice experiences or the positive experiences. But back to, back to palliative care and dying and grief and you know this, this compassion response, which I'd love to do a whole podcast on actually, we still burn out. It's still too much sometimes and we still get overloaded. Would you talk a little bit about that? You know, what is that? Is it because there's things going on in our own lives that already have us saturated so we don't have much left for, for the people we serve? Or, or is it a particular set of circumstances triggers us or are we approaching it in an unhealthy way. What do you think, Catherine? I think that there, there are lots of different parts of this, aren't there? So when I think about people who are trying to work in big, busy hospital departments and the time constraints that they have to work under, then I very much doubt that they get the chance 
to achieve a sense of having completed a piece of work well and get that dopamine reward that damps down the stress response. So in my job where I was offering palliative care in a big hospital, I would meet very, very stressed and distressed members of staff, particularly junior doctors, because the number of people who needed them, the number of tasks to complete versus the amount of time to get all of that done in was was a negative equation. So they always felt that they hadn't finished something, that there was another thing to do, that one more difficult thing could just drop in at any moment and then any time planning is completely lost. So that is highly, highly stressful. And when that starts to happen to people, we know that there's a whole hormone cascade inside their bodies that's gearing us up to do a very short but life-saving fight or flight. And instead of it being short, they are enduring that level of stress and, and hormones racing around their body for hours and hours and hours. So I think that's part of it. When you translate that back into palliative care, do you ever go home and think that was a really, really terrible day? Yes, you do. You do. And it's almost always a day where too many things that were so important for the people we were trying to help happened. So that you can't really have the sense of having enabled those people to have the experience you know they could be given. But the protection from that is that it's not always me or an individual who is responsible for enabling that patient and that family. It's a team. And that sense of being able to say, actually, I now need to go to do this other thing which requires medical attention. This situation here requires the attention of competent, knowledgeable people and here's a nurse who fits that bill, here's a physiotherapist who fits that bill, here's a chaplain who fits that bill. It doesn't have to be me. And I think the teamwork is part of the protective factor for those of us working in palliative care, that those junior doctors and those really busy ward nurses don't have simply because the team resources aren't big enough to support them being able to back off and know somebody else will come in. I had a really fantastic lecture at the .md conference in Galway recently, um, and it was Paul Hydet from Penn State University was talking about teamwork. He asked the audience to listen to the same tune being played twice by a jazz trio, and to notice not the piano, but the bass and the drum parts of the tune. And what we heard was, first of all, uh, a, a trio where the piano was definitely in charge, and the bass playing and the drumming was masterly, but it was serving the piano. The piano was doing the tune, and anything that was clever, that was the piano's to do. And then the second version of the same tune, Waltz for Debbie, for jazz fans, um, was 
the piano then gave way and the bass player did something amazing and the drumming changed and the drumming pulled back to allow the pitched instruments to be doing what they wanted to do and they passed things between them and then the drummer did something really clever with just a little bit of the other instruments in the background. But each time that happened, it was as though somebody had shown a sign, but of course nobody had. And he had us reflecting on teamwork where the whole team is mutually interdependent, but also mutually trusting. If I suddenly have a great idea and I want to give this little bit of a tune a go now, I can do that on my bass and the piano and the drums will not just create space for me, they will do something that supports the sound being right. And then I can just pull back at the end of that and somebody else will come mm. in and the whole thing will work. So he's talking about knowing in a team that you are mutually interdependent, that you are mutually supporting and you are mutually admiring. And actually having somebody admire you in a team is really, really important. Saying, yeah. you know what, I'm really glad that you were here on this shift. I'm so glad that you were the charge nurse for this shift because it's made the whole difficult thing work more easily. So one of the things I think I see in compassionate teams is not just that they look after each other and they move in and out of the space and enable each other to be their best self, but they then praise each other. They then mm. say thank you to each other. They Validate each other's yeah. wisdom and experience. Absolutely. And I, I mean, there's research on this as well. And in the last episode, Shapes of Grief with Jer Murphy, who's a psychotherapist and a poet. It's a lovely one. You should listen. We talk about this kind of mindset at the moment, the growth mindset and the personal best and individuals, exceed, you know, succeeding in society. But we are infinitely happier when we're together. Like the research shows it. No matter how much personal success one can get, if we're not accompanied by people who love us and have that sense of inter interdependence. All we need to do is watch Bohemian Rhapsody mm. and, you know, Elton John's Rocket Man, two amazing movies that are out, you know, and the loneliness, like the, the incredible personal success of both of these artists and the incredible isolation and loneliness, you know. We are far better off as humans when we go together. Isn't there an African word? I think it's Ubuntu or something. And some, some little stories coming to me of how someone says, um, you know, we was with a group of kids somewhere in Africa, I think. And he says, I'll give a dollar to the first child, you know, to reach the tree. Ready, steady, go. And they all run off. And then just before they get to the tree, they stop and hold hands and get to the tree together. And they split the dollar. And it's this expression of Ubuntu. I, I hope yes. I've got it wrong, I'm, or got it right, I should say. But it's this sense of better together, more joy when it's done together. Uh, it's lovely. Yeah, that common good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you differentiated there, you know, about the difference of, say, working one-to-one, -one, which I do. Like, I'm in the, you know, I'm working in then in a busy hospital because a lot of what I was saying is from the perspective of incredible privilege, where I have an hour one-to-one -one 
to work with somebody and then they come back and then they come back again that's highly rewarding for me because I start something and then I see see someone through to the end of a particular process or at least to the point where they're able to be their own therapist and and go out into the world that is really privileged as a caregiver that I have that and you're so right to point out that doctors in hospitals or hospice often don't and actually that also applies doesn't it to families so you're looking after somebody who you love you might be resident with them you might be trying to run your life in your home and still pop in and visit them regularly and help them be supported they may be living in residential care they may now be in hospital um you still got all of your life, all your plates on sticks are spinning. Yeah. And somehow you've got to also do this thing which you want to do because you love this person. And yet nothing's getting finished. The plates are falling off the sticks. Yeah. And that's incredibly stressful. So I meet a lot of people who feel like I'm not being a good enough relative. I'm not being a kind enough friend because there are days when I feel really frustrated about how sick this person is or how demanding this person is now that they're sick. And I must be a bad person to be feeling those things. Well, actually, no, you're a good person under extraordinary stress. And the stress is driving hormones that are giving you emotions that you're not proud of having and you're feeling rage and you're feeling resentment. And that's not because you wish the person ill. It's because you're just trying to do too many things. You're a human being. And you must hear people in bereavement talking about how, you know, there were days when I wished this person dead and now I feel terrible about that. But we meet people who have that. Sometimes it's as gentle as, I wish that he wasn't suffering anymore and if he could die, he would be at peace. Yeah. And sometimes it's as rageful as if he rings that telephone one more time, I'm going to go there and I'm going to put a pillow over his face. And people have had those thoughts. They haven't acted on them. Yeah. But they feel ashamed that they've had those thoughts. And it's so, it's so normal. It's so human. And this is where self-compassion really needs to kick in. Mm. I wrote a little bit about that, about my mother's death on my blog, actually, and I write about, you know, sitting there the, the night she died, before she died, and just being so ready because I was exhausted. Mm. It, was, it was, please just die already. Mm. You know, um, she was given five days. We were told she'd had more or less five days to live. Five weeks later, and I had a 12-week-old baby at home, and I was just so ready for her to die. And that's okay. Yeah, I'm human, you know. Yeah. Um, I'd love to talk about something that we kind of addressed or that you addressed yesterday, Catherine. You said, paraphrase this, but you said, instead of helping people to to live well, we're helping them to die longer. Mm. Are they were they your words more or less? Yeah, I know I know what you're referring to. So I was talking about when we have this kind of medical technology response. And I think this actually is probably going to lead on to us thinking about how we see sick people as multi-dimensional people instead of single-dimensional biological entities 
with a physical problem that I've got a machine or a drug that will make it not quite so bad. So um, somebody who is so sick that they might die arrives in the hospital and actually the backstory here is that this person has had a long-term condition or several long-term conditions for a long time, gradually deteriorating, able to do less and less, still finding meaning in their life because who we are isn't what we can do. But it's very difficult as people feel more and more limited and may even be starting to think that actually the end of my life will be also the end of all of this incapacity and might be a relief. So they end up then in the hospital and they're very close to death. And because nobody knows what they would want, they are treated in a way that preserves their breathing, helps their heart to keep beating. So it stops their body from dying. Maybe it's in an intensive care unit and there are lots and lots of machines. But actually it's not going to prevent their death. It's simply now going to make the dying take longer. Yeah. And one of the things that I talked about yesterday was that that's not always a good thing and it's not always a bad thing because we are so much more complex than just our physical bodies. So it might be that this person really would have preferred not to be given all of this treatment, put into an intensive care unit, would have welcomed the opportunity to die. So one of the questions is, is there something that could happen to this very sick person who's now in our casualty department of our hospital? Or is there something that could happen to this very sick person whose house I've just attended as a, a paramedic with my ambulance? Is there something that could happen to this person that's worse than dying? And actually, if they're not well enough to tell us now, then we need to ask the people who know and love them who are around them or whose telephone numbers are on their pad in their house or whatever. And, and that's why the, the Think Ahead campaign is so important because those are the conversations that it's asking the people of Ireland to have and it's the advanced care planning conversations that we're trying to encourage in, in the United Kingdom as well. So there's what's happening to their body and maybe dying would be welcome. And maybe on any other week, dying would be welcome, but it just so happens that their first grandchild is due to be born next week. <laughs> so on any other week, dying would have been okay. But if there's a chance that I could live until next week and hear the news, possibly even see the baby, photograph, possibly even hold the baby, could you just keep me alive that long now is a different request yeah. and possibly in any other week if the baby is not due for four weeks or six weeks then that's no longer a choice mm. so we can't keep you alive that long so there's this thing about seeing the person not just as their physical body with its frailty and its ailments but their personhood so their emotional self their social self who they, who they belong to and who belongs to them in terms of their family and friends, the people that they love. I, I refer to this as their village, because very often it's not people that they are related to, but they are their dearest people, just the same. Yeah. Um, so when we're thinking about 
people and personhood we're thinking about. Yes, of course, the physical bodily dimension of the illness and how it's affecting them, but their emotional personhood, their family around them, and then that kind of existential thing, which for some people is spiritual, for some people is religious, uh, for many people is spiritual without needing to have God at all. Um, and it's about meaning, it's about what we're worth, um, it's about whether we finish the tasks that we feel are ours in the world to achieve yet, those sorts of things. So I think we need to be helping healthcare practitioners to think beyond this is broken and I've got a machine that can yeah. fix it. You know, when, you, when you've got a hammer, everything looks yeah. like a nail. Um, is it the right nail? Is it in the right piece of wood? Is bashing it with a hammer actually the right thing to do? Could there yeah. be a different way of looking at just this? Just like what you said there, you know, we, we're not preventing the death, we're just making dying longer. And we do have this notion of if they could get to Christmas, you, know, you talk about this in your book, and you just spoke about it yesterday at the conference, if they could get to Christmas or just past their birthday, and then we go, yay, we got them to their birthday, or yay, we got them to Christmas. But at what cost? What are the memories of that Christmas? Are the memories going to be of the person being so ill that it's distressing? So your memory of your last Christmas could be the child who's too ill to open presents or who's distressed that they're not able to enjoy the Christmas. Like, is it going to be worth it? Who are we keeping them alive for? Is it for them? Is it for us? There's so many questions really to be asked. One of the most helpful questions in any situation is, could there be a different way of looking at this? Yeah. Could we manage this differently? Could we change the timings? Could we flip things round? Who are we actually attending to here? Whose are the needs that are the priority? And are they the same needs as the person whose needs are being expressed? Yeah. Um, and yeah. Sometimes it's the vociferous, d distressed relative whose needs we're meeting more than the patient. So actually, again, that kindness to our families of thinking ahead, of having the conversations that say, if I was ever so sick that I could die, I would really want everybody to focus on keeping me alive as long as possible. I don't care how many machines it is, just do that. Or, do you know, oh no, I don't want machines. Um, no, I want to be comfortable, even if I wouldn't live so long. Being comfortable would be yeah. much more important for me. And we need families to have those conversations, tender and difficult though they are. And then we need families to repeat those conversations every now and again. Because what I would say to you now in my relative youth will be different in 10 Absolutely. years' time. And will be different again in yeah. another 10 years after that. And certainly will be different once I know what the conditions are that I'm developing in my body that are going to eventually be the death of me. Yeah. Because then I can start to plan much more concretely and specifically about, depending what the illness is, if this thing happens, just let me die. If that thing happens, patch me up as much as you can and I'll struggle on for a little while. Um, and to be able to just keep changing your mind about those things yeah. as time goes by. So we need to find a way of having the conversations we need to find a way of recording them somewhere in writing so that if 
the person I've told isn't there and a paramedic has to make a decision about me, they know where those instructions are. And and so importantly, the instructions can change. You know, it, it you, like you say, someone in their their health at age seventy, who says, "I don't want to be in a nursing home. I don't want to be in hospital," and then at eighty they develop a condition. At ninety, they're incredibly vulnerable and get huge comfort from the nursing staff who are able to manage them much better than the family can. It's so important, like you say, to revisit again and again. I have I have a situation which I'd love to talk to you about because I'm sure there's lots of people listening. And this is my father who's 91 and very healthy man, you know, very independent. And he was that 70-year-old, don't want to be in a nursing home, don't want to go to a hospital. Um, so a couple of years ago, he had an aneurysm and had surgery. So for three years... It's been one thing after the other, you know, and we've managed to address his needs or his wants, which was be at home for as long as possible. And for a year and a half now, he's had 24 hour care at home. But in the last few months, every couple of weeks, I find I'm bringing him back into hospital to the emergency department because he's not right. You know, maybe he's a little bit delirious or he's got a fever and we don't know why, or there seems to be an infection or a funny rash. And, you know, we talk about a sex-positive environment. I'm a, obviously a death-positive person. And, you know, even with my knowledge and awareness and skills, I'm finding it tricky to know when is enough enough because Dad's very religious. So when I try to talk to him about, have you had enough yet? Or... What would it be like to think about the end of your life? You know, and recently he imagined his mother being with him. His mother died 60 years ago. So I know he's preparing for death. And it's been happening for quite some time. He doesn't eat anymore. You know, a couple of bites here or there. He sleeps a lot. This is a really long process. This is going on a couple of years, you know. And... So when I go there and he's not right and he doesn't feel well, I find myself every time I'm going, what do I do here? Like ethically, I say, you know, dad, do you want to feel better? Do you want me to bring you to hospital to see if they can help you feel better? And he says, yes. Mm -hmm. And we go to the hospital and his heart medication is shifted to, you know, relieve his kidneys and then that causes damage to some other part of his body. So we're shifting the problem from the heart to the kidneys. Then we shifted it from the kidneys to something else because the medication for A damages B. And this scenario is going on. Um, he needs more and more interventions for different bits of him that are failing. Yeah. And he gets the intervention and then he goes home and he stabilizes again for a period of time until the next one. Yeah. It's really tricky, Catherine. It, it is really when tricky. When is enough it? enough? And I've seen this <laughs> so, so often. So enough is enough when the person thinks it's enough is the first thing. Yeah. And so sometimes I meet families where they've kind of got the opposite situation where their dear person doesn't want to go to hospital anymore ever at all. No, no, no. 
And actually the family is frustrated because they think this person is actually having a worse time than they need to have. And if they could get into the hospital and just have things a bit tweaked, they could enjoy a better quality of life in the view of the people who are not living that life. And the person who is living that life says, but when I go into hospital, they call me the wrong name, the tea tastes wrong, I don't know anybody, it's noisy, I can't sleep properly, I see bewildered people, uh, you know, I, I don't, the, the experience of being in hospital is so horrible for me. I'm prepared to put up with these physical difficulties to not have to be in the hospital. And there's that split between the physical self and the emotional self, and the emotional self can't bear the hospital and is making a wise decision on their own behalf. And then there are families who continue to present somebody who is no longer getting any benefit from having a hospital admission, but they still keep coming back and saying, but you must be able to do something. And then there are families like yours who are still kind of in the middle because your dad is clearly becoming much, much more frail. And yet each time you've presented him to the hospital, they have been able to do something that's made him less uncomfortable again as yeah. he's gone back home. And maybe the thing to explore with him might be what is the experience of being in hospital like? And does the benefit that you get at the end of it feel worth the cost of having spent that time in the hospital? Because it may become that it's the balance rather yeah. than the outcome that's the really important thing to him. And I think for his generation as well, Catherine, I don't know if it's different in the UK, but being deeply Catholic and deeply religious here, God has all the power. Mm -hmm. So it's like he has no autonomy over his choices, you know. So how do we help people take back the power? You I, know? I think that's really interesting. And I, I meet a lot of people of different faiths who have that same quandary. Um, so, uh, so people who are faithful Muslims um, are very aware that their belief system says that only God can give and only God can take life and that it's in his own time that's mysterious to us. And there's a story in the book about a family who were offended because they were actually given a prognosis for life expectancy. If anyone new is listening, the book is Catherine's book, which you must buy with the end in mind. It's a, a Bible for life as we're talking <laughs> about religion. Yeah. Um, and, and this family were offended because uh, they'd been given a prognosis for the young wife's life expectancy because they saw that as a doctor making himself equal to God. And this is such, such a kind, generous, self-effacing colleague of mine. There could be nobody less likely to be trying to make themselves equal to God. But you can see how that cultural mismatch arose. Um, so one of the things that we've found very useful is to, for, for people who have a faith that includes ministers of religion of some sort, to be able to come in and talk to those people about what their religion, what their scripture, what their rules of their religion actually say. So, so I've had Catholic patients who've said, well, I can't... Um, I, I can't have a do not attempt CPR order 
because that would that would be a mortal sin. It would be me saying that I'm deciding when I'm going to die. Because if God wants me to be resuscitated, the resuscitation will succeed. And he he allowed me to sit in the conversation when his priest came to talk to him. And that was really, really interesting because his priest talked to him about the Catholic concept of a happy death, which is a well-prepared-for death, which is a death that accepts that we will die. And for Catholics, it rejoices in the possibility of redemption and heaven. And actually, because this man wasn't engaging in end-of-life planning, how was he going to have all of his Catholic ducks in a row um, in order to be in the right mind state when his dying was happening? Did he really want a resuscitation team to be jumping up and down on his chest? Or did he, be want, did he want to be putting himself into a position of being mindfully aware that he was now about to die, if he was awake enough to know that, and to be prayerful and to be joyful about the transition that he so sincerely believed in. And the skill of this priest in this conversation was absolutely astonishing. Mm. And so I've realised that how, how we um, approach dying very much can be about people's um, personal beliefs. And one of the difficulties I've come across is people who have a religion that doesn't have pastoral care. So I looked after a lady who um, belonged to a group that worshipped in each other's homes and they were an evangelical Christian group and this lady had a, a highly malignant tumour and was in her early 50s and had teenage children and her group were pay, praying for her to be cured and they believed devoutly that their faith would save her and they took biblical quotes so there seems to be a quote that by your faith you will be saved and they took that to mean saved from dying. So the teenage children felt very excluded from their mother's care because they didn't share the faith of this group. The group were not terribly kind and compassionate to the, the, ch the children about it. But the thing that was most intriguing to me was she came into the hospice where I was working at the time for management of her nausea. And while we were managing her nausea, we had some really interesting conversations. And this woman had reached a point where she said, you know, I'm, I know I'm going to die. And what has happened to me through my faith and through the prayers for me to be cured is that I have been healed. And I thought, oh, hang on, where are we going with this? And she said, well, so I've been healed. What I've been given is the strength to prepare my children and prepare myself for me to die and for their care to be continued by their aunt to whom I will do a handover. But I'm really worried about the rest of the women in my prayer group because I think their faith is going to be shaken when I die because their miracle hasn't happened, because they can't understand me when I say, but I've had the miracle. The miracle is that I am emotionally healed. I'm ready to die. I'm ready to hand over. And their kind of very literal uh, interpretation of the scripture that they followed 
was actually leading them into a blind alley, but there was no person in authority to come and say to them, actually, you're this, passage, yeah, this passage yeah. of scripture could mean what you're saying, but here are several other possibilities that it might mean, particularly under these circumstances. So I think the spiritual dimension of personhood is really, really important. But religion and religiosity is a double-edged sword. And it can yeah. be very, very helpful, but it can be extremely obstructive as well. Absolutely. I've had that experience in, in grief work as well, where oh, a little girl who had multiple losses in her family, a young child, she was four, went to see a counsellor, and the counsellor said, so um, your sister and your mum are in heaven. And the little girl had never heard of this place before. So she came out going, well, they're not really dead. They're in this place called heaven where you go to when you're dead. So if we just kill ourselves, we can be with them. And this is where things are taken literally. We have to be so careful. And I've seen this with children and I've seen it with people with intellectual disabilities who maybe can't see the metaphor or the symbolism of something and take it literally and believe, you know, they're at risk of suicide then. They really are because they've been told, well, this is where your mom is or the emotional damage of, well, your dad's in a better place. He's in heaven now and he's happy there with Aunt Mary. And, and then the child is left going, why did he leave me? Was, was I not good enough? Am I not a good place to be? You know, was the place with me here not good enough? So all of these platitudes that we think are helpful can be so deeply damaging. Yeah, indeed. You need to be careful of that. Catherine, I'd love to just finish up with um, chatting about palliative care more broadly because, well, the Irish Hospice Foundation had a great Twitter chat recently about what's your understanding of palliative care and for many people we say well that's where you go when you want to die that's Mm -hmm. when the the big guns come in it means it's the end of the road but we know that that's not true palliative care is very different would you tell us a little bit about that With, with great pleasure so palliative care is the approach to an illness that is about managing the symptoms and minimizing the distress and we've already talked about the, the fact that we're not just talking about a physical, bodily distress. Yes, it's really important that you can have a good approach to helping somebody who's got pain or breathlessness or, dare I say, constipation or diarrhoea. You know, they're all things that just make people miserable, aren't they? Maybe nausea, one of the most misery-inducing symptoms of all time. So they would have medications, they would have physiotherapy interventions, they might have hypnotherapy interventions, so all all sorts of different ways of helping somebody to be less distressed by the symptoms that they've got. So that's the physical bit of it. But of course, the emotional part of it is I have this illness which the symptoms would be best relieved by curing the illness. And almost always people we see in palliative care no longer have an illness that's curable. So now we have to say to all listeners this really, really important thing. 
If you see the palliative care team, if somebody you love sees the palliative care team, they are not obliged to die. Okay, that's really, really mm. important. And we see people at the very beginning of their illness journey. And in fact, part of the work that we did in the hospital where I worked was to see people at diagnosis of some very serious illnesses whose symptoms made them feel just too rotten to get to the treatment that they needed that could cure their illness. So they got palliative care, they got symptom management to get them well enough to then go on to have treatment that could cure them. So they were really not obliged to die after this in the palliative care team. In fact, that would have been really awkward. So there's the physical symptom management, then there's this knowledge that I probably have an illness that can't be cured. What does that mean for me? What does that mean... What does that mean for the people who I love and the people who love me? What am I going to do? Where am I going to be? How am I going to be? You can imagine that kind of emotional whirlwind that then hits somebody. Because even though we all know that we're all going to die one day, we don't really live as though we're going to die one day until we get given this piece of really bad news that says it's going to be of this and it's going to be sooner than you were expecting and now suddenly you're getting ready for it so part of palliative care is about holding people safe during that emotional distress and part of it is helping them to find ways and tools and things that they can do to manage their emotional distress so that they're not a prisoner of it um, clearly it's an emotional journey that you go to from that shock of realizing that this is going to happen to you through realising that actually I can still have moments where I feel quite normal to actually living a life where I feel normal most of the time and then every now and again I'm reminded and I feel sad and sorrowful or anxious. So it's very like the grieving journey, isn't it? Because what you're doing is grieving yourself, you're grieving all those, the, the loss of the future that you could have had with people that you love. So part of palliative care is enabling people to emotionally cope. And part of palliative care is thinking about the nuts and bolts of daily life. Um, so if you're going to get back to the house that you live in and you can't use your legs anymore, um, where are we going to put the ramp that gets you to your front door? How are you going to get to the bathroom? Which room is your bed going to be in? Um, are there aids and appliances we can use to help you to be a little bit mobile in the house? Um, if you've always cooked for the family and your counters are the height that you work at when you're standing then do we need to get you some kind of little thing that you can sit in your wheelchair while you peel your vegetables and give directions? And maybe you're not the chef in your kitchen anymore, but you're the managing director in your kitchen instead. <laughs> mm. So we're thinking about physical and emotional and social place, people, and then that spiritual umbrella that, that kind of embraces us all, whether it's religious or not. And holistic palliative care isn't that one person, like I'm the doctor in the team, can do physical and emotional and social and spiritual. It's about there being a team who each of us can deliver components of that and working together we can do it better than any one of us can do it on our own. Mm -hmm. I think I've made that sound very complicated <laughs> when actually it's mainly about meeting a group of people who are just incredibly curious about you. We really like to know what's important to you, who you are, what you're about, and how we can help you to continue to be that person. How to live well. It's, it's facilitating you living well. 
Um, I'm thinking of one of the doctors yesterday who said, you know, I don't remember her name, maybe you do, she's the paediatric palliative physician, Fiona, Fiona. and she said, you know, we all have this terminal illness, it's called life, Mm -hmm. and it's so true, we are all going to die, and when, you know, Jer and I talked about this in the last episode, when we can really embrace our death, our life becomes so much more meaningful. I follow a beautiful lady uh, called Orla Tinsley, and she was an advocate for cystic fibrosis patients here in Ireland because with very, very poor facilities. And she had a double lung transplant, I think, last year, sometime in the last 18 months. And I think it's Instagram. I see her on photographs of her breathing in the air on the beach, embracing friends. It's her quality of life, her presence with each breath that she's been given by her donor is just remarkable you know so to have that end in mind and your your book with the end in mind if we can keep that end in mind we can live so much fuller and so much more deeply and I'm just I'm struck Catherine as you were talking there behind you an ambulance has pulled up you know to the hospice and a young woman has been taken out, you know, with her family around her and she looks sick enough to die, Mm -hmm. you know, and she's being brought here. This is going on all around us all the time and sometime it'll be our turn. Sometime we may be that person being brought into hospice or to hospital or being brought home. Keep it in mind. Keep it in mind because we can have a richer life as a result. Absolutely true, and and one of the things that you know, come to coming back to what is it that keeps us there that we started with? One of the things that keeps us there in palliative care is the astonishing resilience and graciousness that people reach when they acknowledge that the end of their life is approaching. And they're able then to not be bothered about the stuff that doesn't really matter. And it turns out, they show us, that actually most things don't really matter. The thing that matters is love. And the love of your family, the people who you are fond of, and what you're able to do to leave your legacy of loving behind you is way more important than any, any of the stuff. So when you look at Orla and you look at those photographs and you you read what she writes below, it's a hymn of praise and thanks to that donor and to that family. And we can all think about, could I be that person? Could we be that family? If we think ahead, if we make these decisions ahead of time, then we have the option not just of finishing our own lives well, but if we're leaving a healthy body or healthy bits of the body behind, that whole potential of giving that gift of life well lived to somebody else who without that could not have lived well and might not have survived is just an astonishing generosity and we can all offer that. Tremendous. And actually, in the link of this episode, I'll put a link to organ donation in Ireland and maybe in the UK also if people would like to 
find out more information. That'd be a great thing. Yeah. Catherine, thank you so much. Thank Such you. a pleasure. for listening to this episode of Shapes of Grief. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice. And if your grief is making you unwell, please do go to your healthcare provider. Grief is a normal part of being human. You're not alone. Once again, please do consider becoming a patron of Shapes of Grief on patreon.com. This is a listener-supported podcast, and we rely on your support to keep us going. The music was written by Silly Wizard and performed by Sue Hart and Martin Craddock, especially for the Shapes of Grief podcast. Until the next time, from me, Liz Gleeson, stay well and take very good care. On a storm torn shoreline, a woman was standing. Yeah. Mm-hmm.